0: Our world thinks about truth in this way. It is isolated and unique to each individual. I have my truth, you have yours, and they are not the same. How do we have God-glorifying conversations with our neighbors that have different understandings of truth? I'm your host, Aaron Miller, pastor of Equipping at Grace Baptist Church in Santa Clarita, California. Welcome to the Magnify Podcast. of the Magnify podcast. I am joined this week by two guests. One of them you know very well it's Pastor Jared Burkholder, and I'll allow him to introduce our other guest here in a minute. But, Jared, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks. It's really a privilege to get to be here and have this
0: conversation. In our previous episode, I was joined by Pastor David Haig as we were unpack- unpacking the first topic of our Foundations of Faithfulness, uh, the topic of truth. And he walked us through what is meant by living in a post-truth world and the implications that that has on the Christ follower living in the age in which we live. Um, we unpacked certain aspects of the biblical worldview. And in some ways, it, it kind of, I think, was helpful, definitely, but could feel philosophical and, and maybe high in the air. I want to bring it down to the ground just on a more of a uh, day-to-day level and how we walk in the truth and how we filter through the lies that our people walk in, on a Monday through Friday uh, week to week situation. And so, Jared, before we get into it, will you introduce our guest?
1: Yeah, we are super blessed to have with us here today our newest ministry partner, Jen Kittner. Jen comes from the world of academia and is being uh, sent by Grace and uh, another church to go to the Arabian Peninsula to be involved in theological education. Uh, among the unreached. And so uh, we're just excited to have her as part of our ministry team, but then also have her here and to, to join in this conversation with us. Thanks for being here, Jen.
2: It's good to be here.
0: Thanks for being here. I kicked it off last or previous episode, we kicked it off with the topic of truth. And I asked Pastor Hegg, what is meant by living in a post-truth world? When I've heard him say that, I've heard other pastors say that, what is meant by that? How does that strike you when we talk about living in a post-truth world? What does it even mean?
1: Yeah, I think we live in a world that just thinks about truth very differently, perhaps, than other generations have thought about it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon to hear people talk about their truth. They're living their truth, they're expressing their truth. And so sometimes I think the way culturally or popularly people think about truth is they think about it as kind of an isolated lily pad. So you have your truth, and I have my truth which kind of denigrates the reality of absolute truth. So there's really nothing that coheres or brings together differing worldviews and different aspects of truth, which makes it impossible then for us mm-hmm. to have a conversation at the meta level. You have yours, I have mine. I can be sympathetic to what you believe, but it doesn't really have any bearing on what I believe.
0: Right. And the moment we talk about truth, it assumes something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. That there is untruth, A-truth, non-truth,
1: right.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Right. falsity, falsehood. What are some of those falsities that I think our culture assumes to be true.
2: I think one is that happiness is the ultimate pursuit, mm. that whatever makes me happy is what is right. Right. And that's a truth claim.
0: Absolutely it is. How does that tend to dictate one's life? I've said I've said for our kind of our local area it seems like what dictates the lives of our people in in our town is recreation and beauty. Mm-hmm. Those are the drivers. And so that dictates their ultimate purpose. And their meaning and their calendar and their checking account, et cetera.
1: I think one, another aspect of it to build off of, of what Jen was saying was um, and Carl Truman talks about this in the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which David referenced in the last episode. But uh, the ability to shape all of my reality, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if I don't like who I am in terms of my gender or any other facet mm-hmm. about me, I have the ability to shape who I am and to shape my reality. And I, I think it. It thinks about the universe as totally pliable to what I want to be, rather than understanding that there are some absolutes to which I have to conform myself. And so if you believe that, then all of your life is about trying to to make your reality be what you want it to be. It really plays into that right. idea, I have my truth and my reality. And so if your reality bumps up against my reality, there's really no moral reason why that's a problem other than, you know, kind of a Darwinian, it bothers me. And so I'm going to try to outmaneuver you or something like that so I think it just continues to isolate people, right? Mm -hmm. I would think of it as like the Netflixization of society. Netflix caters exactly, Mm -hmm. they have an algorithm to put shows in front of Jared that Jared likes, right? And so I think there's this increasing tendency um, to just expect the world to totally adapt to me Mm -hmm. rather than being willing not only to adapt myself to absolute truth, but then to accommodate other people around me.
2: Well, and that comes into the church a lot of ways, right? We're all catechized. Is that the word, yeah, by our world and even our technology, and so we expect everything to be catered to us, and we're told in so many ways that everything with it is within our control and mm. our sovereignty. So we have just in the world at large a bunch of people walking around as many gods, thinking that everything revolves around them and thinking that they can control all things. Mm.
0: Yeah. The default of humanity is a myopic, I'm at the center of the universe. That's our default, right? And for an unbeliever, the concept of truth must be self-determined. They have to be be their own North Star. And in our Christian worldview, we acknowledge that because there is truth, absolute truth, that means that there's a truth giver. And so truth mm-hmm. comes from outside Comes crashing into our world of darkness and dictates reality. For the unbeliever, it's hard to get there. The best they can do is maybe get to where the ancient philosophers got. The, oh, there's an uncaused cause or an unmoved move, but then they stop. There's a ceiling. Mm. There's no morality that can flow, you know, from that. Yeah.
1: Can I jump in here with a question? <clears throat> yep. How is it that we engage our neighbors with the concept of truth? Because I think a lot of times, you know, and, and David's talked about this a lot. Um, it's just very easy to revert to kind of a posture of being a culture warrior, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, we're going to stand for truth and defend truth against people who don't believe it. And we don't ever really think about engaging unbelievers. It's more like, I'm going to tell you this absolute truth. And I have this baseball bat I'm going to hit you with called the (laughs) truth. Um, I would just be curious what you guys think. How is it that, how, how can the people of Grace Baptist Church engage a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member who has a, a perspective on truth that is isolated to themselves, that, that doesn't really believe in the idea of absolute truth. Mm-hmm. How is it that you can begin to move towards someone and have uh, a worldview conversation with them if that's what they believe?
0: I think you need to be observant and you need to be able to ask really, really good questions. All, all that orient around how's that working for you? Because something is, is, everyone has a set of drivers in life, Mm -hmm. right? And and those drivers are dictating our day-to-day. For the believer, it's obviously the scriptures. It is the truth of God's word. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. For the unbeliever, it's something else.
1: Can you tease that out a little bit? What would be just a generic question or two if you were talking to a neighbor you'd want to start with? What would be a good starting point?
0: Well, I think sometimes it's it's driven by circumstance and subject matter, and so if I have a neighbor and they recently lost a loved one, you know, there's a set of questions and there's an approach that I can have with them that meets them on a human level, that I just trust and I know um, that we have that in common, and so while we don't worship the same God, and believe the same things. I know that in their humanity they are suffering, and I can meet them on that common ground. Mm. I, and that's what Paul models in Acts 17 on the Areopagus. Yes, right. And yeah. so there's that common ground where he's bringing the conviction of the gospel into human conflict, mm-hmm. and it, it's that convergence point. Mm. And you don't have to seal the deal. You don't have to yes. launch into yeah. a you know a gospel monologue. You're asking good questions, mm. and you're almost planting seeds along the way, hoping that it would lead to another set of questions or conversations. And so you're, it's not, it's more than just pre evangelism. You're looking to convert maybe a moment or looking to convert a conversation or convert uh, a relationship before you're getting that conversion point with, with Christ.
1: Which is why I think it's so important to be conversant in the gospel narrative. I think sometimes when we think about evangelism. We tend to think of like a script, like you go from point one to point two to point three, Whereas if you're conversant with a gospel narrative, you can jump in at any point, right? So if you're talking to someone who's experienced loss, you can talk about the brokenness Mm -hmm. of sin, right? If you're talking about the existence of the divine, you can start with uh, the the reality that God exists, right? Um, If you're talking about something that's redemptive, even like a movie or something like that, you can start with the idea of redemption and kind of work your way back out to the gospel. And to your point, it's not having one end-all be-all conversation. It's having an ongoing set of conversations. I'd be curious what you think, Jen. How is it that you can talk to somebody who has a different understanding of truth?
2: Well, I think one thing that you both highlighted is that it needs to be relational, that we need to be living lives with people and knowing them, and that that's not just thinking, how can I be 10 steps ahead in this conversation to present this truth, but it's it's in a caring way. When we look at truth in scripture, God is described as truth, and so often what's paired with that is steadfast love. Hmm. It's God of steadfast love and truth. And I think we need to be living with neighbors in such a way that they're they're watching our lives, but also that we know those moments and those entry points. Um, and they're going to know the difference if it's, we want to show you in this moment that we're right and you're wrong and we're righteous and you're not, or if it's a genuine love and affection for them that wants to see their flourishing.
1: And I've been thinking a lot about the aesthetic of truth recently, right? Because I think you're right. A lot of times when we interact with unbelievers, it's about winning, right? And that's our culture war. It's I want to I wanna I wanna either win or I wanna talk louder than you so that it feels like I win. As opposed to to evidencing, okay, in love, I wanna show you that what we believe is is fundamentally beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And so the person of Christ is beautiful. And having a narrative that makes sense of your world is way more beautiful than you trying to make internal sense. Well, that's really, that just wrecks it just wreaks havoc on people.
0: Yeah, and that's really important because I think when people think of truth, immediately it, it, it's a it's an abstraction. It's a cerebral topic. Mm-hmm. And we want to be able to show that it's not just something that we know. It is something that, that fashions and forms our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when it becomes an ethic, it, it's gone beyond just this is what I believe and this is what I know. Now it's an ethic. I think that's what people want to see. Mm-hmm. And so you're claiming the name of Christ. You're claiming to to be a a uh, Bible-believing person that believes what the Bible is proclaiming. What does that then translate into? Well, it, it's usually going to be in moments of suffering and sorrow and uh, mm-hmm. just general conflict that that's going to bear witness mm. to itself.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about something you said earlier. I've been reading a book by Sam Chan called How to Share Jesus Without Being That Guy, which is just a a <laughs> yeah. book. Um, and he talks a lot about asking good questions, right? That a lot of times when we pontificate, uh, it feels like we're doing good evangelistic work and that the angels are clapping in heaven. But in reality, we're not really getting anywhere with somebody because they kind of tune us out, right? We've all been pontificated at. Um, whereas if we learn how to ask good questions and and engage a worldview, it not only helps us understand the person we're relating to, but uh, Chan makes a point in the book that when you do that well, <laughs> Most people who aren't sociopaths are going to then, at the end of those questions, begin to ask you questions about what you think, right? Mm -hmm. So to really genuinely in love, try to figure out what someone believes. One has the opportunity to reveal logical inconsistencies in what they believe, but it really does open up the opportunity for them to go, okay, that's what I believe. Now, what do you believe, right? And you have a chance to talk about the ethic and the aesthetic of God's truth, right?
0: In a previous episode, I had mentioned that, you know, we are all, all of us, in our humanity, put in the sandbox of humanity by God, which is a beautiful thing because that means that we have that in common, no matter who we are, where we're from, what time period we're from. Like I can read an ancient document in the Old Testament and though it was written by Moses thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, um, it conveys because It was written by a human hand with a human mind and it conveys. And that's how language works. And so I've not moved beyond it. I've not, yeah, become wiser than something that's ancient, it conveys. And my point in that is that we are imago dei, we are made in God's image, all of us. And that gives us access to meet people in their humanity, in their need, and and wherever they are. How then does the truth, move from being an abstraction down to an ethic that we can identify with and people can identify with as well. I mentioned the book, What You Can't Not Know, that being a a very important premise. There are things that people just can't not know. And if they're honest with themselves, they have to acknowledge that they have come from somewhere and they are going somewhere. And there are all sorts of implications and consequences in the mix of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it really ties into identity and purpose mm-hmm. for the Christian, right? So my identity isn't any number of good but flawed things that other people are, uh, or the people around me would reach for. So whether it's, and we've talked about this before, whether it's politics or career or family or hobbies or retirement, all good things potentially in themselves, but not ultimate things, right? And so for the Christian, it's really rooting in who has God made me to be? And that's directly tied then to what has God made me to do, right? God has made me to image him. So how do I do that, right? How do I represent, like if that was the ethic that constrained the way I thought about how I work and how I drive and how I talk to my neighbor and how I spend my money, that I am here, I'm breathing for the purpose of imaging the goodness of God to the world around me. I do feel like that would change the way that we live. And so like we've been saying, truth isn't an abstraction that we just celebrate at church, put on the shelf and go to work on Monday. It really has to shape everything about me, um, which is really hard, but that's the beauty of discipleship, right? Because discipleship is us lovingly (laughs) shoving the implications of truth into each other's lives.
2: So one way the Imago Dei would be lived out in life, let's say, is as I'm having conversations with neighbors who have a completely different view of life and truth and humanity, I understand that they're made in the image of God. And so, and that I don't know, I'm made in the image of God and that I'm dependent upon him. So I don't know these things because I'm wiser or better. Mm-hmm. And so that, that helps me be patient with them knowing that they need God's truth. And that I, they have
1: dignity. Right? Yes.
2: Yeah. I think another way is confessing our sins or asking for forgiveness. I I had an interaction on a plane where somebody had like shoved my bag and I got irritated and snarky and it wasn't maybe what some people would have displayed, but he knew I was angry. And um, thinking about that on the plane, I thought, man, I'm here to image God. That's my point. What would he think I'm living for? What would he think about my God after that interaction? And I thought this could be kind of weird, but like I was valuing papers in my bag over a human being. Mm. And I was like, I need to ask for his forgiveness. And so I did afterwards, I just said, you know what? Like, I'm sorry I got so irritated. That was just papers, like you're a human. I care more about you, will you forgive me?
0: Did he just look at you?
2: No, he was like, thank you, but I'm sorry I messed up your papers. I needed to be more thoughtful of (laughs) you. Um, And it wasn't like I was trying to convert him, but it was just this moment of understanding my image bearing and his image bearing and realized I wasn't living in light of that. So what does the truth look like then? To confess that and to say that—that's
1: a great point because I think sometimes we get too granular in what our purpose is. We only think about the moment of conversion, right? And I think in our head we do a calculation on return on investment. That if this person's not going to get saved right now, it's really not worth talking to them. Whereas if I believe that it's my my privilege to image God in everything that I do, then that infuses not just the people around me with dignity, but acts like that right so i get to show a person dignity and that honors god even if the end result is they don't walk off the plane a christian or something like that and again i just think that elevates all the small stuff that we get to do in life whereas if my purpose in life is to win people to christ and that's it and i only do that a couple times a year then everything else i do is wasted but if my purpose is to image God, then the raking of the leaves and the conversation with the guy on the plane and how I treat the barista all matter a lot because I'm imaging God in those in those conversations. And
0: here's what's beautiful about that. You can trust that. Hmm. You can trust the systems that God has given us mm-hmm. to not just reveal the truth, but to live and walk in the truth.
1: Yeah, that's good.
2: This all makes me think of Ros- Rosaria Butterfield too. I don't know if you guys have ever mm-hmm. read The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Yeah. Like just how that church engaged her Mm -hmm. as a homosexual professor. Like the guy wrote her a letter that was so kind, but so firm on the truth that like, she had all the fan mail, all the hate mail, and didn't know what to do with this letter and wanted her desk clean. So kept throwing it away, but kept going back to it. And they walked with her for probably like two years. It makes me think about, what does that look like on the ground? It looks like her blowing up at him for his beliefs and then his wife baking her bread and him bringing it over and dialoguing some more and
0: simple things you know simple things
1: but I, i think sometimes we think that we have to do one or the other right i either have to blow people up or i have to absolutely affirm them right and so we're left you know kind of vacillating between the two so i'm i'm over affirmative when i shouldn't be more convictional i'm way too convictional and angry when i should be loving and i think the the example of christ is that there was this embodiment of uh, the personification of love tied to conviction, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that's a great example of what it looks like to walk faithfully with an unbeliever.
2: Or your question about the kids reminded me of a story of a professor talking about like um, a homosexual couple with kids moving in across the street and then making the decision of like, we wanna know them, which means having them over to dinner. Mm. But what does that look like for our kids too? Cause we wanna put truth and Christ on display for our kids too. So having a conversation with them about God's design and what God created but that we love our neighbors across the street and that it's for mommy and daddy because it takes wisdom to know when and how to have those conversations to have those conversations, not for you.
1: I think an issue to think about in terms of application uh, in this conversation is let's say I'm talking to a neighbor or a friend and as happens, their worldview is just spilling out all over the place in the conversation. Sometimes it feels like as a Christian, I want to correct everything that they would say that's wrong. Um, so that they know that I don't affirm their lifestyle or affirm a wrong worldview. But to have a real friendship, nobody wants to be a friend who every six seconds is going, actually, um, I, what the scriptures, I, we want to be convictional, <laughs> right? We don't, want to, we don't want to affirm or celebrate untruth or sin. But how do we navigate that, right? I mean, what would, what would help you wrestle through or adjudicate when to correct somebody that you're talking to? And when just in the conversation to understand that they're operating from an unbelieving worldview and we shouldn't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. How would you navigate that?
0: I think I would if I felt that what was being promoted was harming one of the sheep or my children leading anyone astray, I would immediately have to interject with the truth. Uh, I would have to do that lovingly. I would have to do that with tenderness and with gentleness and kindness and all of that, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. If I felt that um, what was being promoted was um, antithetical to the gospel or confused the gospel in any sort of way in the eyes of people that I was looking to disciple, shepherd, or in my case, parent. Then I would need to interject with the truth, but again, exhibiting the fruits of the spirit. If I'm in a situation where I'm just talking to my Uber driver, mm. and you know he's just going on and on about the meaning of life and his fourth marriage and um, you know his reincarnated self and where he's going in life, and I, I don't need to stop every other word mm. and try to correct that. That's not helpful. You need to allow wisdom to dictate um that that interaction
1: that sounds not hypothetical that was pretty specific <laughs> <laughs> Louisville 2018
2: I think Aaron what you said about not interrupting somebody and correcting them all the time makes me think of the fact that God is long suffering with us mm. and he doesn't show me all my sin all at once but he is doing that and bringing me to him and that's my goal with somebody else is how can i best lead them to him and put him on display and knowing that he's at work in them. So I want to be praying, Lord help me to see what you're doing and help me to partner with you in that because he's the one that's going to change hearts. I just think I have to remember a lot that I'm never going to argue anyone into the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that actually if I'm constantly correcting or constantly responding to everything, what what's actually going to happen is they're going to actually their defenses are going to go up and they're going to engage in like a battle almost. Mm-hmm. And so I think recognizing their Imago day, as we were talking about before and, and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to care for you over the long haul. And that means that when something is said that is absolutely detrimental to you and detrimental to others that I'm going to need to act. And it might be saying something in that moment. It might be I'm, I have somebody that I'm discipling with me and we're engaging with a non-believer and it might be a conversation beforehand preparing them and helping them think through it's an unbeliever and how am I going to engage with them?
0: How would you all respond to Christians that would use Old Testament prophets as a point of reference in proclaiming truth? Well, men and women of God, they proclaim truth. They stand in the face of it. What do you say to them?
1: I think one, I think just to be direct, I think there's a particular arrogance in posturing yourself as a prophet, mm-hmm. as someone who was chosen by God in a particular contextual time and given a particular message to say. And I just think we have to recognize there's probably a little bit of arrogance in my heart mm-hmm. to see myself in that light. And also a massive
0: misunderstanding
1: of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And what Revelation is about. Um and to not, again, see that in the scope, we don't just have the Old Testament prophets. We have the Old Testament prophets. They're extremely vital. Uh, we have other instructions about how we interact mm-hmm. with, with unbelievers. And, and, Jen, I was thinking as you were talking, it matters not just that we hold on to and defend the truth. It matters that we do it in the right way. Mm-hmm. Because the way that I hold and defend the, my truth, excuse me, <clears throat> the way that I hold and defend <laughs> the truth uh, to a watching world says something about the kind of truth, right? And so mm-hmm. if I hold it in an angry, vitriolic, cold-hearted way, in, in how I'm holding on to scripture, I'm communicating something about the character and nature of God that's not true, right? So it doesn't just matter that I get my theology right. It matters that I hold and defend mm-hmm. and articulate my theology in the right way, um, because I might be the only Christian that person interacts mm-hmm. with, right? And so the way I interact with them says something about the character of God. And so it's not just that intellectually I have to get God right. I have to image God well, otherwise people are gonna see an idol. They're gonna see a misrepresentation of what God's actually like. Can we
0: go back to social media here for a second? I think that's a platform that our people are very active in, you know, in good ways, but also in in not so good ways. What are some ways we can encourage our people and how to use social media when it comes to standing for and in the
1: truth? I do think it's the difference between uh, seeing yourself as as a prophet and um really understanding the calling of of being a gospel ambassador Mm. right so if i'm a prophet i can just blast things out there Mm. and then people can respond however they want to respond in fact sometimes a negative response generates more more views and so that can be seen as a good thing um i think we see that a lot in our culture right Um, this whole idea of trolling and just and trying to incense the opposite side so that they react and seeing that reaction is a good thing i would say that's that's fundamentally unbiblical and an ungodly a way to approach engaging others. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if the end goal again is to have ongoing relational conversations, then my goal in posting anything that could be controversial or that could push back on the ethic of the world around me would be to take that conversation offline as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we could all recognize very few of us have had profitable dialogue online. And I think if we're really honest, even the dialogue that we get into um, just because someone's responding doesn't necessarily mean it's profitable. There tends to be a mindset and a posture when you're interacting with people online mm-hmm. that is not to engage and love them, it's to fight them. that's mm-hmm. just harder to do over a cup of coffee face-to-face, right? And so, if I, again, if I really, if my goal is to image God well, is to showcase the ethic mm-hmm. and aesthetic of the truth, then my goal in posting anything would be, how do I have a real conversation with a real person mm-hmm. as fast as possible? And if that's not possible, then I have to ask myself, why am I posting this?
2: Mm-hmm. I like what you said about gospel ambassador because I think an ambassador represents and it and we know that then it's not about us, but it's also going into another culture and learning. And I'm going to be engaging people from around the world and they have a lot of different customs and views and experiences and even worldviews. And I want to be curious about them. I want to understand what makes them tick. And I, I, I think there's a lot of learning we need to do. It's harder to realize that the person across the street is from a different culture. Mm. Like maybe not ethnically, but just how they think about the world. And that I need as an ambassador to understand that culture in order to rightly represent my king.
1: That is such a good point. Because I think we, hopefully we put on the posture of being a student when we go overseas. It seems more natural then. We don't do it across the street. We don't do it in another city, right? And I just think you're, you're right, that there are so many differences that I want to, I want to learn the person uh, across the street from me because I love them and because they're made in the image of God and they have dignity. They're not, uh, it's not a utilitarian kind of thing. Um, but I also want to, I want to get to know them so I can know how to engage them more mm-hmm. effectively. That's great.
0: What are some ways people in our church could stand for the truth? What does that look like? Standing on the street corner and
1: preaching?
2: Posting on Facebook, vitriol?
1: There we go. (laughs) Always the Facebook. Yeah, that's always. There we go. I just think it looks different. I mean, on the negative. I think it looks different than what most, what we tend to gravitate towards naturally, right?
0: I always like to suggest that you you work to be smaller, more local,
1: Mm.
0: more next door. More relational. More relational. Right? Yeah. When I'm trying to fight a national battle on social media, I can't meet anyone out on that plane because it doesn't exist. Yeah. That's a stage and I think we have to big. admit
1: that sometimes that's just for me, mm-hmm. right? I want to feel vindicated in being right. And I think if we were to start with what's true and then how do I help those who don't believe what's true, um, believe what's true, obviously through the spirit of God, I wouldn't start by posting on Facebook or shouting at someone on a street mm-hmm. corner. That I wouldn't think, be the tool that I'd reach for immediately. I think
0: what we're suggesting is that when you stand for the truth, it may not look like you're standing necessarily.
2: Mm-hmm good. Well, and it might be that you're in a workplace and something's going on that you can't be a part of. And it's in that moment recognizing I have to take the consequences Mm -hmm. or even the reproach of the world for standing for truth and standing for truth, may be quitting, or it might be saying, I can't do that. I'm sorry.
0: I would suggest that when you asked forgiveness of that man that shoved your bag around on the airplane, that you stood for truth. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you were living the truth, you're demonstrating a life living the truth. That's taking a stand, that's
1: communicating something. Yeah, yeah. I think I always wanna encourage people to think the long game and to think about Mm -hmm. more opportunities to stand for truth, right? So we've talked here about not shooting your gospel gun at somebody, right? (laughs) But then in the way that I'd interact with unbelievers, that I would interact with them in such a way that by God's grace, I would have the chance for another interaction and another interaction. I can't control their response. It might be that they're so off put by the truth because we believe that the gospel is an offense, but my manner can't be offensive, right? Mm -hmm. And so hopefully in the way that I'm interacting, the way I'm loving an unbeliever, we would have an interaction and there'd be the chance for another one and another one and Mm -hmm. another one. Not just the one end all be all
0: truth standing. So to our brothers and sisters who are listening, I think what we're trying to communicate is, don't worry so much about standing for the truth. The truth will stand on its own. God will defend Himself and His Word will remain mm-hmm. for a forever and ever. Worry about standing in the truth. Mm-hmm. So, standing for the truth is one thing. Standing in the truth is what we're called
1: to do. I mean, can we can we make a mic drop sound at that point? Sounds <laughs> good. good.
0: Jared and Jen, we always want to encourage our people with resources on um, the topic of our episodes and uh, just any resources that come to mind that would be helpful. Jared.
1: Yeah, I wanna, I'll want i go back to what I mentioned earlier, uh, Sam, Sam Chan's book, How to Share Jesus Without Being That Guy. Uh, such a clever title. There's so many helpful takeaways there. So I, I think he provides a, a paradigm of how to engage people with questions. He also has this model of how to move the conversation inward from potentially superficial topics of conversation to getting to values and then ultimately to getting to worldview. Um, It's a really small book and it's so helpful in the practice of engaging somebody else with truth. Mm. Very good, Jen.
2: A book that came to mind is called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's the story of Rosaria Butterfield's um, coming to Christ through the ministry of a pastor and a church who walked with her uh, for the long haul, uh, talking about truth and engaging her with truth and relationship.
0: Very good. I'm gonna throw out there a book that I think our church has become increasingly uh, familiar with, but "Gentle and Lowly" by Ortland. It is just captures the ethic and movement of Christ mm-hmm. and how Christ's followers should mimic Him. He stood in the truth, and yet He came to get us in a gentle and low manner. Met us in the dirt, man. He met us in the dirt, right where we were. Amen, amen. Well, friends, just to wrap things up here, I think just to sum up, we have identified that there is absolute truth Mm -hmm. and there's a truth giver and there are implications to that. And so truth has come crashing into our world of darkness and it's not only impacted the way that we think, it has impacted the way that we believe and ultimately it impacts the way we live. So we think biblically, we believe biblically, and when those two things reach across the, the table and shake hands we live biblically and uh, yeah to the glory of god jared jen thanks for being with us this was fun thanks guys